Do you have a balanced diet? Are you keeping an eye on what you eat and making sure you have a balanced diet? Children at school, I think you're taught quite a lot about balanced diets, aren't you? What do you need? You need carbs and protein and vitamins and fibre and, I don't know, probably a few other things I've forgotten. I think I've got the main ones. You need to have a balanced diet. Now, you don't need the same amounts of each, do you? Let's imagine you've got a plate there, and on that plate there's 100 grams of carbs. You don't also have 100 grams of vitamins. Does that mean vitamins are unimportant? Oh no, they're important. But you don't need 100 grams of them, like you need 100 grams or whatever it might be of carbs. Things can be important, but you you don't have the same quantity of them. Now, do you have a balanced diet of the Bible? Do you get yourself a balanced diet of the Bible? Or do you just, do you just stick with your favourite bits? Do you make sure you get a good variety? Do, do you make sure it's balanced in a biblical way? I would suggest that the Gospels, the New Testament letters and the Psalms are like your meat and veg or your carbs. They should be the bulk of your diet. But there are some other books like Lamentations that maybe are like your vitamins. You do need them. We're given them for a purpose, but not as much as the Gospels, letters and Psalms. They're not to be the bulk of your diet. But you still need some. Lamentations, if it's like vitamins, we need some, but not as much as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and Romans and so on. Well, let's have a series in it, but keep it little for that reason. That's what we're going to do. It's like our vitamins in our diet. We need some, but we're going to keep it quite short. My plan at the moment is that we're going to have a three-part series, and it's topical, not going through chapter by chapter, but taking some topics, going like this. First of all, the need for lamentations. Secondly, the anguish of lamentations. And thirdly, the comfort in lamentations. Now, if you're listening carefully, that's not what we're doing tonight. That's what we're doing, I hope, over the next three weeks. So today is the need for lamentations, the need for it. We've had chapter one read to us as a representative chapter, but we're going to be looking around the book and drawing out different verses. We need this book of lamentations. It is like vitamins. We need it, even if it may be just in small doses, because it's scripture. God has chosen to put it in his word. And he's put it in his word as a good example. And that is necessary to say, you might think it's not, but there are bad examples in scripture. I wonder if you can think of some. There are things put in scripture for us not to follow. There was a man called Job and he had some friends and their words are put in scripture, but not as a good example, but to show us a bad example. There was a king called Saul and he's put in scripture and his sins are put in scripture, but not for us to follow. He's a bad example. But Lamentations is not like them. It isn't here to say, this is bad, don't do it. It's here as a good example. It's more than just example. But it's here in God's word for us to follow because we need it. It is scripture. But it's only one part of scripture, a quite small part of scripture. And so we need more than Lamentations. And so we will consider, as well as the need for Lamentations how Jesus makes a difference to lamentations. 
So this evening, that means what I want to do is what lament is, why we need lament, and then how Jesus makes a difference to lament. That's the plan. So first of all, what lament is. I want to give you a flavour of this part of God's word to start with. What is lament? Now, what does the word lament mean? We've got lamentations. Obviously, the first two syllables of that is lament. A lament is a song or a poem expressing grief. Crying out with sorrow. And here we have five such poems. Our Bibles don't always get the chapters quite right, but here they're exactly right. The five chapters in your Bible are five Hebrew poems, as Malcolm mentions. Poems of grief. Poems of sorrow. That's what Lamentations is. But we can say more than that. So I want to take you through what is lament and give you some of the flavours of what it includes. What is lament? First of all, it is an honest cry. It's an honest cry. This is a shocking book with its bluntness. And it says things to God that perhaps you might think, we're not supposed to talk like that to God. Because it's an honest cry. An honest cry of pain. There's pain in this book. There's physical pain. Chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to keep firing out verses and just give you examples. And you can listen or you can look. Up to you. Chapter 3, verse 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. And the he is God. Now, it might be there the physical pain is expressing emotional pain. But there's certainly pain. The children are learning chapter 3, verse 16 of the Bible, aren't they? But I don't think this one's on their list. It is scripture. It's God's word. He has broken my teeth with gravel. Imagine children, a mouthful of gravel being jammed into your mouth until your teeth break. He says, that's what, it, that's what life is like for me. But there's also emotional pain. Did you notice as chapter 1, verse 16 was read to us? 1 verse 16, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. It's emotional pain. Verse 20, see, O Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within and in my heart I am disturbed. It's an honest cry of pain. That's what lament is. But lament is also an honest cry of protest. Now here, we start to get a bit nervous. And we have to be careful how we put this. The lamenter protests. Oh, by the way, I'm going to call the person who wrote this the lamenter. Traditionally, it's thought to be Jeremiah. And there's a good case for that. There's no reason why it couldn't be Jeremiah. And it would fit very well with Jeremiah. But it doesn't say who it is. So... We can't be absolutely definite about who it is. The traditional view that it's Jeremiah is a good case, but it's no more than a good case. I'm going to say the lamenter. The lamenter protests to God. He protests. God's punishment seems disproportionate. It seems too deep, cutting the nation to the heart. For example, chapter 2, verse 20. Look, O Lord, and consider... Whom have you ever treated like this? Should women eat their offspring, the children they have cared for? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? It cuts too deep, Lord. What are you doing? And it seems too wide. 
it seems not to have just been the guilty, but also the innocent who suffer. Chapter 2, verse 21, young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. It cuts too deep and it goes too wide and it seems unrelenting. Chapter 2, verse 2. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. Without, Lord, don't you have any pity? It's, it's unrelenting. Chapter 3, verse 44. 3.44. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. Aren't you listening? Don't you hear our cries for mercy? It's a cry of pain and a cry of protest. And as a result, it's also a cry of confusion. His his protests are not the same as blaming God. This might seem like a fine distinction to you, but it's an important one. He protests, but he doesn't blame God. You don't find him accusing God of any wrongdoing. This is faith seeking understanding. Here's a man who, he believes in God's good character, but he looks around him and he finds it hard to match what he sees with what he believes. And he brings that confusion to God. Look at how the whole book ends. Quite a remarkable ending. Chapter 5, verse 19. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you're angry with us beyond measure. Do you you get the feeling of his confusion? I believe you are good. And I look around and I cannot match what I see with that. And I'm bringing my confusion to you. Lament is an honest cry. That's the first thing about lament. It's an honest cry. But that has also led into the second thing to get about lament. It's a trusting cry. It's an honest cry, but it is also a trusting cry. And we've seen that in how the book ends. Those verses I just read to you. Have a look again at chapter 5, verse 19. He trusts God. You, O Lord, reign forever. That's a strong statement of faith. Is that your statement of faith? Do you believe that one? I hope you say, yes, I do. I believe the Lord reigns forever. But to really believe it, that's a big statement. The Lord reigns in everything he rules and he does so forever. And it's because of that he cries out to God. It's not despite that, it's because of that he cries out to God. It's because, Lord, you reign that I'm coming to you with my troubles. That's how the book ends. You've got the same sort of thing going on in the very centre of the book, chapter 3. Maybe some other time we'll look at the structure of the book. It's got this very definite, clever structure that is all saying to us, chapter 3 is the very centre. And chapter 3 is structured to give us what's the very centre of that, but that's the subject for another time. In chapter 3, the cries of pain increase in intensity. 
The bluntness with God about suffering is ramped up in chapter 3. But so do the statements of faith. For example, chapter 3, verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Wow. This man's a real believer, isn't he? This man's got great faith, firm faith. Right next to statements of pain and protest. But it's because of the faith He's bringing his pain and his protest to God. I'll give the same example as many of you heard a few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 42, which is this. When a husband and a wife sadly have a disagreement, when there's a problem in the marriage or some ongoing, uh, someone's hurt the other, the worst sign is when they don't talk about it. That's the worst sign. Oh, it can be very hard to talk about it takes a lot to talk about it. But the worst sign is when it's ongoing, but they won't talk about it, because that's giving up. That's saying, he's not worth talking to. She won't listen. He won't respond. She'll never change. And you don't talk, because you've just given up on it ever getting better. What a bad sign. Lament is not being like that with God. Lament is not giving up on God. It's bringing to him our cries of pain and protest and confusion. And and it's an act of faith saying, God, I believe you are worth talking to about these things. I don't understand what you're doing, but I believe you are worth talking to about it. Lament is an honest cry. It's a trusting cry. And thirdly, It's not just about us. It's a cry that isn't just about us. Now, I said this lament was a cry of pain, but most of that pain is felt for others. Uh, This is where we need to remind ourselves what's going on here. We need a bit of history. The year is 588 BC. Well, that's the big year that's just happened when this was written. In 588 BC, the Babylonians marched on Jerusalem. And the superpower of the world at the time lay siege around Judah's capital city. And they stayed there for 18 months. 18 months inside a walled city with no one going out and no one coming in. And the food supplies going down and down and down until people are starving. And disease is flying around rampant. And then the Babylonians, when the people are weak, break through the walls. And they go through the city tearing down everything, systematically destroying all of the houses. And then they get to the temple and they purposely defile it with what is most obnoxious to the Jewish people and loot it of all of its treasures and then burn it down till there's nothing left. And then they carry off the people into captivity. You probably couldn't imagine worse devastation. This is what breaks the lamenter's heart. It's how the whole book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. 
Verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn for no one comes to her appointed feasts. There's, there's no one travelling on them. because There's no one going to the feasts. Verse 6. All the splendour has departed from the daughter of Zion. Verse 10. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary. Those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. Here's God's city and even God's temple and it's all utterly destroyed. How can they worship without a temple? What does it mean for their salvation that there are no sacrifices? What does it mean for their access to God that there's no priest? What does it mean for God's honour that his temple is a smouldering pile of rubble? This breaks the lamenter's heart. It's about God's honour. But on top of that, he looks around and his heart is broken over others' suffering. Chapter 4, verse 4 is an example. Chapter 4, verse 4. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Verse 5. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those nurtured in purple now lie on ash heaps. And possibly one of the most horrible verses in the Bible, chapter 4, verse 10. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Lament is not just for us. It's not just about us. Do you have reason to lament? Well, as you think about your answer, don't just think about yourself. Think about the state of Christ's church. Think about the suffering there is in the world. Think about others. Lament, it's an honest cry, a trusting cry, a cry not just about us. And uh, lament also includes pleading with God. Now, Lamentations tells us, and it's really good news, it tells us we can be totally honest with God. We can speak to him and tell him exactly what's bothering us and troubling us. And he he loves to listen to his children. That's such good news. But it's not just God as the ultimate psychiatrist, laying us on the couch so that we can get things off our chest. It's not just that. Lamentations pleads with God to act, to actually intervene. So, chapter 1, verse 20. See, O Lord, how distressed I am. He asked God to look. Chapter 1, verse 21. He asks God to execute justice. May you bring the day you have announced so they may become like me. It sounds very vengeful to us, but he says, look. And execute justice. Chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Looks like you've forgotten us. Remember. And don't just remember. Restore. Chapter 5, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return to you. Bring us back. Make it clear again we're your people. Lament is not just getting things off our chest. It's going to the one who can do something about it. Look at us. Remember us. Do justice. Restore us. 
Right, there I've tried to give you a flavour of the book and to show you what lament is. Because there's actually rather a lot of lament in the Bible and probably very little lament in a modern worship service. And that's an imbalance that we ought to think about. So secondly, why we need lament. What's the point of all this? Why do we need it? Now, it might be better if I called this point why we lack lament, because what I want to do is give examples of things that discourage lament, why we tend not to do it today. And I hope that by showing you these examples, you'll see actually this biblical lament is a good thing. And it's it's worth us doing this. Not all the time, not most of the time, but some of the time. So why do we tend not to lament today? Here's one, society's ethos, that says you've got to appear successful and happy. Society's ethos is saying to us, you've got to appear successful and happy. Here's one example that I've noticed. Few people have funerals these days. Few people have funerals. You might say, what are you talking about? I've been to many funerals. Ah, yeah, but we tend not to call them funerals these days. Have you noticed that? They're celebrations of life. Now, I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying it's wrong to call it a celebration of life. It's a good thing to celebrate life. But is there something we miss? It's good to celebrate life, but is there an attempt to suppress the mourning and to put the emphasis elsewhere? I was at a funeral very recently, and these very words were said, we are here to celebrate a life, not mourn a death. Well, I'm glad we were there to celebrate a life. But the people looked to me like they were really struggling not to show that they were mourning a death. Anyone bereaved knows whatever you talk about celebrating life, the mourning still happens. And it still hurts. And it still lasts. And driving it under the surface and pretending it's not there and keeping it secret only makes it worse. The Bible says you can bring your lament to God. And that releases us from that unhelpful tendency. Lament is a good correction to our society's ethos. Always look happy and always portray on Facebook how successful you are. But it's not just out in society. Here's here's a second pressure not to lament. The church's version of it, which is sometimes this, pretend everything is wonderful. Now, I think this can come from a misuse of Romans 8:28. Do you know Romans 8:28? It's a wonderful verse, a verse worth memorizing. Great news. Romans 8:28 says, "All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose." But there can be a misuse of this into I've always got to pretend everything's wonderful. But Romans 8:28 doesn't say all things are good. They're not all good, but it says God takes and works all things out for a good end result, a good purpose. Not for everyone, but for those he's called. Corrie and Betsy Ten Boom were two sisters, two Christian sisters. And they were taken by the Nazis and put in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And there, in that concentration camp, Betsy told Corrie, we must give thanks for everything. The Bible says, give thanks for everything. What, said Betsy, even these wretched fleas that are in our beds? Yes, said 
Have I got it right way round? Yes, said Betsy, even for the fleas. Oh, no, said Corrie. I can't give thanks for the fleas. Well, it turned out that the fleas were the reasons why the guards didn't come into their room, but left them alone. Now, we can wonder at God can turn even fleas to good. And we can admire Betsy's spirituality. I admire her. What a wonderful woman. Give thanks even for the fleas. But I'm not 100% sure she was right. Do you think she was right? Yeah, have a think about that. Give thanks for everything, even the fleas. You see, it doesn't say all things are good. It says God works all things out for good. And it doesn't actually say give thanks for all things. It says give thanks in all circumstances. And that's different. There's always reason to give thanks, but it's not the same as pretending everything's wonderful. The Bible's teaching on lament releases us from that, let's pretend everything's wonderful. As if we're being unspiritual if we're not like that. I wonder if it sometimes comes from a misuse of God's sovereignty. I was once reading a newspaper, and there in the newspaper was a scandal in a church. A scandalous situation in the church, and it had got into the national newspaper. There it was. And you can imagine how the newspapers were crowing over it. These Christians, look what they're like. And there was a Christian nearby. He was in my workplace, and I thankfully had a Christian work colleague. I said to him, look at this. Isn't it so grievous? It upset me to see God dishonoured this way. And what was his answer? It was a breezy, God's sovereign, everything's fine. Is that what we're supposed to be like with God's sovereignty? Lamentations. The lamenter has a high view of God's sovereignty. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 37. Chapter 3, verse 37 Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Wow, what a strong statement of God's sovereignty. Good and bad both come from God, he says. But he doesn't say, so everything's fine. Just sit back, it'll all work out. No, he believes in God's sovereignty. But he also laments because not all things are good. Lament releases us from a Christian version of, we've got to pretend it's all wonderful. Here's another reason, I wonder if, if this is a reason why we don't lament. Is it compassion fatigue? Compassion fatigue. Christmas is coming up. And you know what happens on the TV when Christmas is coming up, but I don't know if it's happened already. I don't watch them, but there'll be Christmas adverts. Uh, Yeah, I know there'll be John Lewis and Sainsbury's and all that, but there will also be the charity adverts that will show us homeless people and will show us children in, in Yemen and will ask us to give money. But we've seen it many times before. And we see suffering on the news day after day after day and... We get compassion fatigue. We just can't take it in. More suffering. It's hard to feel moved when there's continually so much of it. Well, I wonder if we're like that, and that's a reason why we don't lament. We live in a world where people's lives are still devastated by war in Syria, where people are desperate enough to cross the Mediterranean in inflatables. 
where people are trafficked and sold as slaves into the sex industry. Slavery isn't just 200 years ago, it's still going on. Where every week there are people in Loughborough dying and dropping into hell. Every week, every week. Where God is blasphemed countless times in the media and in ordinary houses. And Jesus is thought to be just a swear word. Where people in Eritrea are locked in metal storage containers in the blazing heat and left there just because they're Christians. Where the church in the West seems to lack power. So many activities and so few conversions. Where there are millions of people all across Central Asia who've never heard the gospel. Now, what do you do about all that? And you know I've only mentioned a tiny fraction. What do you do about it? Do you say, stop, I don't want to hear about that, it's too depressing. I've had people in church actually say those words to me. I don't want to hear about that stuff, it's too depressing, it's too hard to take. Let's turn a blind eye. Do you do that, or do you let it tear you up? Just, just, you do focus on it, and it tears you up inside. Well, lament says, bring it to God. You can bring it to God. Be confident enough in him to bring it to him and pour it out to him and ask him, look, remember, execute justice and restore. I think if we faced up to what the world is really like, we'd hear a lot more of that in our prayer meetings. Those of us who go to the prayer meetings, and more are welcome, please come. What what do you think? Do our prayer meetings reflect that? I'm not so sure they do. I think they may reflect a fair degree of compassion fatigue. Or is it lack of confidence in God to do anything about it? I don't know. But there's certainly a lack there. Can we do this with any confidence? Well, let's move on now. We've had what lament is. We've had why we need it and looked at the lack of it. But let's finish with this. How Jesus changes it. How does Jesus change lament? I want to tell you a principle. The principle is two things that we need to hold together. Two things we need to hold together. One is this. Jesus has suffered lamentably, but risen and conquered sin, death and all the suffering. When you know about the cross, as you read Lamentations, you'll see things that will make you think of Jesus on the cross. There are little glimpses in advance of Christ suffering lamentably. So Lamentations tells us about a sufferer being stripped bare and humiliated naked. Lamentations tells us about a sufferer being deserted by friends and forsaken by God. Is this ringing a bell? I hope so. Lamentations tells us about a sufferer being beaten and his flesh being torn. Lamentations tells us about the sufferer offering his cheek to one who would smite him. And if you know the cross, all of that rings a bell. Oh, what about, I love chapter 1, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, or you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? And if you know anything about the sufferings of Christ, surely you say, oh, that matches. This must be about Jesus. 
Jesus has suffered lamentably but risen and he's free of it all and he's defeated it all. We have to hold that together with this. We live in a time when his victory is done, yes, but it's not yet implemented fully. His victory is secured, but we're not yet experiencing it in full. We live in a time when Satan is defeated, but he's not yet dead, and he's still lashing around. And in his death lashing around, death throes, he can still cause trouble. You see, the principle is hold those two together. Jesus suffering but rising victorious, and it's not yet all implemented yet. That's the principle, hold those two together. And Jesus told us exactly that. I'll give you two examples from John's Gospel. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is about to leave and he says to his disciples, in this world you will have great trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you see that's the two held together? I have overcome the world, victory, but you'll still have trouble because the victory hasn't all been implemented yet. Or take John 11. I love the way these are put together in John 11. Jesus demonstrated them. Children, do you know John 11? Do you know what it's about? It's about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And Jesus goes there to where Lazarus has been buried and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's defeated all the suffering. All the deadly powers of evil defeated. There will be resurrection life. But he doesn't then say, so come on, Mary and Martha, stop sniffling. What are you sniffling about? Put away your hankies, pull your socks up. Lazarus is going to rise again one day and everything's going to be okay. He doesn't do it, does he? What does he do? Jesus wept. And for some reason, our English translations, none of them pick up the strength of when it says, Jesus was angered and moved within him as he saw the broken hearts and the broken people that sin and rebellion has caused in this world. You see, there you get both on the resurrection and the life. Jesus has victory, but it's not yet implemented. So Jesus doesn't say, come on, it will all be okay. No, he laments. Put the two together, and that means for us, we can have both rejoicing in the Lord and mourning with those who mourn. We can have both do everything without complaining and how long, O Lord? We can have both Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and Romans 8, creation groans, Christians groan, and even the Holy Spirit groans. And in case you didn't recognise, everything there was quotes from the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord and mourn with those who mourn. Do everything without complaining and how long, O Lord? More than conquerors and three lots of groaning, creation Christians and even the Holy Spirit. And they can both go together because Jesus is victorious. But the world's still fallen and it hasn't yet been fully implemented. Christians are supposed to have a balanced diet. And Lamentations is a little bit of that balanced diet. But we're also supposed to lead a balanced life. And Christian balance is not some tepid, 
mild, bland, emotionless mush in the middle. That's not what balance means. Where we're not bothered about anything. No. Christian balance is like a tightrope walker. How does a tightrope walker balance? Well, at least sometimes by keeping hold of a long pole. There's the tightrope walker keeping balance by keeping hold of a long pole. In other words, there's, there's some sort of weight up that end, some weight over that end, and he's keeping hold of both. He's got hold of both ends. And the point of this message really is to say keep hold of both ends. Keep hold of the pole, keep hold of both ends. Don't turn a blind eye to the suffering there is in the world. And the way that the Lord Jesus is dishonoured, don't bury your confusions and your doubts and your troubles and pretend they're not there. Bring them boldly, honestly, even bluntly to God. Keep hold of that end, but also keep hold of, I am the resurrection and the life. It is finished. I have overcome the world. You always have reason to rejoice in the Lord. Keep hold of both. We're still living in the world of the Lamentations, Jerusalem. The Lamentations, Jerusalem, where there's suffering and death and enemies. But Jesus has guaranteed the coming of the new Jerusalem. What's that like? Oh, it's a place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Live realistically in that old Jerusalem, but keep hold of the new Jerusalem that's coming. Let's pray. Father, please help us to live with our eyes open in this old Jerusalem with its suffering and its death and its enemies. Father, we bring to you some of that suffering now. Please look, look at the need. We bring to you people who are near to us. All of us will know people who are suffering in body, with illness, people who are suffering in mind, people who are bereaved here among us. Father, look and remember the loneliness and the sadness. People in Leicestershire, not far from us, who are homeless, who, who are enslaved by drugs, by prostitution. Father, look at how the image of God is wrecked and degraded and dishonoured. Father, how long must war in Syria persist? How many children must die in Yemen? How long will your children suffer in prison in North Korea and in those metal containers in Eritrea? Please, Father, look, remember, execute justice, restore. Father, look at your church in the West. Oh, how divided, how weak, how distracted we so often are. Our words are are so often like that Old Testament description of a woman who who comes to labour but doesn't have enough strength to bring to birth. And our words so often, they fail to bring people to new birth. So many words and so little life and power. Where, Father, is the work of your spirit? Where is the turning of the world upside down? Please, Father, look, remember Restore and help us to have our eyes open to, uh, not depressed by, but our eyes open to the situation as it really is. But Father, keep our eyes also on Jesus. Keep our eyes more on Jesus. Thank you. He has the victory. 
Thank you, it is finished. But please show it. Make it known. Spread its effects and exalt your son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.